This time I invite you to turn to James chapter 1. You'll also find it printed on your bulletin. Our text is going to be verses 9 through 12, but we're going to look at the, read the first, basically verses 2 through 12. Um, as you turn there, I'll comment that on Monday last week, I promised my wife I'd stop at the grocery store. And I decided not only to be a dutiful husband, but I thought I would take it to a whole nother level. I stopped in the flower department and picked out three bunches of bouquets, partly because you buy three, then you actually get a better deal on them. And I also thought I would be able to come up with a nice, colorful fall bouquet. bouquet. I got home and I did well. Jamie not only applauded my color choice, she gave me a kiss. I felt so good, mission accomplished. I looked at those flowers today. I was hoping as a sermon illustration I could say they were starting to wilt and fall over. Actually, they're still looking really good. They're still looking really good, but you know what's going to happen by next week. They probably won't be there because somewhere in the middle of this week, they're going to start to do what flowers always do. They're going to start to be decay. The fresh smell will leave. We get this. We witness decay all around us. Things falling apart. I am constantly repairing my home. Things I didn't even know were in my house break, fall apart. Had to fix. We had to fix something on my wife's car last week. How about our pets? Our dog is getting older. My turtle, I noticed, was really sluggish last week, and I was concerned. He hasn't eaten in four days. I don't know what's going on. 20-plus-year-old turtle, not looking good. And at the hospital, I was there a lot last week. I visit people every day I go there who are falling apart. The doctors can only repair so much. Frankly, some come in like Humpty Dumpty. They cannot be put back together again. I stood there last week in many rooms and there was nothing I could say or really do. Watching folks weep actually as they watched a dear one pass away. Remember Johnny Cash, one of those final songs that he recorded? He looked back on his life at the end and he sang, Everyone I know goes away in the end. Friends, that is what James wants to impress upon us, the brevity of life. We are time-bound creatures here. But that's not all. James wants to impart heavenly wisdom at how to think about this. You see, James has good news for us who recognize we are not residents in the land of the living, but sojourners in the land of the dying, in need of something this world cannot offer. And James tells us that the believer can boast in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray and then let us dig into our text. Please join me. O oh Lord, make us to know our end and what is the measure of our days. Let us know how fleeting we are. Behold, you have made our days a few handbreadths, and our life is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do we wait? Our hope is in you. Deliver us from all our transgressions. Do not make us the scorn of the fool. 
We are mute. We do not open our mouths, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from us. We are spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear our prayer, O Lord, tonight, and give ear to our cry. Hold not your peace at our tears, for we are sojourners with you, guests like all our fathers. Smile upon us again in Christ. We pray for his sake. Amen. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man pass away, fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this, the word of our Lord, endures forever. Friends, we return tonight to the Gospel of James. And I say the Gospel of James because James is good news. And tonight's passage, I think, is one of the highlights of this inspired letter. James began this letter, as we read, by telling us to rejoice. To rejoice despite the inevitability of of difficulties, tests, of trials coming our way. James told us, we saw in our first sermon, trials are perpetual, they're problematic, but paradoxically, for the believer, they are purposeful, producing perfection. You see, God gives the believer trials in order to make us perfect like our Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, as you're living in the midst of it, and trials come your way, difficult ones, the passing of a loved one, loss of a job, betrayal, things that we can make no sense of. We've experienced this. Some of us have been devastated. Painful circumstances, things that make no sense at all. That's actually why James follows up. God will provide you one thing in the midst of that when you pray. There's a guarantee that God will provide you one thing. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. I'll confess this is a surprise. At least it is for me. 
When I've been in situations that have rocked my world, one that leaves me perplexed, in pain, frustrated, when I'm alone, afraid, anxious, all sorts of things come to my mind about what I'm lacking right now. Relief, comfort, peace, an end to this horrible trial. Wisdom does not rise to the top of the list as one of those things I tend to think I'm lacking in the moment. How about for you? But James says, Joel, what you need right now to ask God for is wisdom. Wisdom so that you can begin to see and to trust that God's up to something. You need heavenly perspective about what is going on in the midst of what makes no sense in the here and now. And James says you can pray to God for wisdom from above, and he gives it generously to all without reproach. If you ask God, God say, well, you did that this week, Joel, or nope, nope, sorry, Joel. No, without reproach. God freely gives wisdom. And this is good news. Because we need wisdom. We live in a knowledge age. More knowledge than perhaps ever. And we don't live with much wisdom in our day. We can see by the status of so many people around us, by our culture. And today, following this call to seek wisdom, James is going to actually pivot back to trials again. And to specific sort of trial, the trials of poverty and riches in this world. The number one trial that James puts before us is the trial of poverty and riches in this world. I think we need to back up just for a minute and consider the original audience here. We live in a culture where we have a middle class. And even the poorest of our day have more than so many people did in James' day. <clears throat> this morning we actually saw Jesus commend a poor widow for putting two of the smallest coins that you had in that culture, for putting her last two coins into the offering. She could actually rub two coins together. That's the best anybody who was poor could do. You had the poor, but you also had a lot of rich people in James' day. And the disparity between the two was vast. This was the situation in James' day. You had the poor who were extremely impoverished. You had the rich who not only had money, they also had considerable power. They often took advantage of the poor, and the poor had no advocates for them, not like our day. The fact that we have advocacy for the poor in our day, we have structures in place that kind of help people when they're down and out, it's actually because of Christianity. The West was won over by Christians who did what James said at the very end of this chapter, who cared for widows and orphans in their affliction. That is why Christians won the West, because of their care for those who were needy. And we'll see James, he actually does a lot. I think he helped, through his wisdom, advance Christianity and the influence we've had. James addresses riches and poverty a lot in this letter. We'll see he addresses the attitudes of partiality to the poor, or partiality to the rich versus the poor in the very next chapter. There's a whole section on that. Warning Christians how they dishonor the poor man, while the rich are actually the ones who oppress him. James is writing from a culture where rich and poor, it's nothing like our day. It's kind of disparity. Don't get me wrong, we still understand this on one level. But James, 
Read chapter 5. He's going to speak the harshest words in this whole letter against the rich who have kept back the wages of the laborers by fraud and how God, he's heard their cries and he's going to deal with them. The context is a culture where the rich and the poor are at such extreme odds with one another. We need to understand that about this letter. I'm not saying we don't get this. It's a matter of degree, not in kind, but the degree is great. There's a lot of talk in our day about the disparity between rich and poor. And there's attacks on both sides. All right? Some say the rich, they don't share with the needy. Some look down at the poor and say, well, why don't you change your situation? And just depending on us all the time, right? We hear this talk. All these battles, all this back and forth, how refreshing this is. To hear James tell us, the rich and the poor can have fellowship in Jesus Christ. Strive towards the same goal, the crown of life that awaits the faithful at the end. I want to encapsulate this sermon under three headings. First, exaltation. Second, expiration. And third, inspiration. Exaltation, expiration, and inspiration. James begins with exaltation, an exhortation for both rich and poor to boast. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. I read this and I was thinking, hmm, here's Pastor James, pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jerusalem. and Maybe he actually had a scene in mind. Picture in your minds, it's Sunday morning and Pastor James is standing in the pulpit and he, like any good pastor, is trying to discern how he might best help the congregation coming to him. And James pauses as he sets his eyes on two men sitting there in the front row. The first man walked in and he is dressed to the nines. He's in his Sunday best. And the second man sitting right next to him is poverty stricken. He's clearly wearing his Sunday best, but there are patches sewn on his shirt. He's got mismatched shoes. You can tell, very impoverished. After taking in this scene, James is suddenly moved by the Spirit, and he looks square in the eyes of the poor man. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Wow. At this, the poor man suddenly sits up a little bit taller in his chair. Yeah, he's spiritually rich. God has truly blessed him. He comes to church and, wow, he has reason to boast. What about the rich man who's suddenly looking at James? And James looks at him, this man of obvious high status, and a hush falls over the whole congregation. As everyone's thinking the same thing, Pastor James, what is he going to say to the rich guy? And James looks at this rich man and says, Let the rich boast also in his humiliation. And at that, the rich man, he sits up a little bit taller too. He puts his arm around his poor brother. They give each other a high five. I know that's a really strange scene to take in, doesn't it? It's actually a really strange thing for them to share in, don't you think? On the surface... You would think that the very thing that would keep unity from happening between the two is pride. They're boasting, right? 
The rich boasting in how he earned his wealth. The poor man, he'd have reason to boast too. I've seen many poor people boast about how they're not like the rich. Each could point to the faults of the other and boast that I'm not like him. Yet James says boasting is the solution to the tensions that can arise between rich and poor. Let the lowly brother boast and let the rich brother boast. Godly boasting in God-given circumstances is a community activity. They can boast in their differing trials. Why? What came right before this? Because they have wisdom at how to understand them. What is the trial of the poor man? Not having enough. Let me ask you, what is the worldly wisdom he is tempted to believe? Worldly wisdom says to him, if you only had nicer clothes, a full belly, a nice house, you could be happy. If you could only win the lottery, you would never have any problems again. But godly wisdom enables the poor Christian to say to himself that God has blessed him. My poverty is a test from God. He is testing my spiritual character. Is my faith in God, in my circumstances, real and authentic? What's the trial of the rich man? Having a lot. What is worldly wisdom saying to him? You have it all, so live it up. Get a bigger car. Have a better vacation this year. Live for the pleasures and all the stuff of this world. We all know there's not enough stuff in this world to fill the God-sized hole in the soul of man that was created for eternity. So think about his test. He's to boast in his humiliation. James says that the rich man must realize that the things that make people turn their heads and notice him, they're really nothing. Do you see what deep humiliation that is? In the words of Jimi Hendrix, and castles made of sand fall into the sea eventually. Think about it. If this rich man is unable to handle his riches in a godly manner, how do you think he's going to respond when the recession or the depression comes and the stock market crashes and he loses it all? Both of these men will become complete disasters if their circumstances change. I talked about A.J. Swoboda, and he talked about what changed his family's life. They won the lottery. His grandparents won the lottery came home and everyone's college is paid. They're going on vacations and everything else. And in no time at all, his grandparents who were married for almost 50 years, divorced and people stopped talking to one another. Just, <laughs> no, we will become disasters. Money is not the answer. James is telling all people, rich and poor, they must learn to handle the trial before them. And how do they do that? By boasting in what is of true value. And what is that? The Son of God. Actually, the Son of Man, who became the Son of God to fill that hole in their souls, knowing Jesus Christ, who was rich, but he became poor, so that all who would believe in him, rich or poor, might not perish, but find forgiveness in his cross and be raised up to become heirs with him. The poor man can boast in his exaltation because he has been made the heir of a kingdom. Can you imagine? A poor man, and the kingdom of God is mine. 
The rich man can boast in his humiliation because guess what? He's been brought down, brought down to the poor man's level. But blessed are the poor. Jesus says, he's probably thinking of what his brother once preached in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are the poor, for they shall receive the kingdom of God. On to our second point, expiration. James noted that like a flower of the grass, the rich man will pass away. And now he adds in verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I think what James might have in mind is you get seasons where you'd have rain. And wow, you would look at all the flowers suddenly bursting up. Ah, and all it takes is one day of heat and then winds blowing off the desert. Those desert winds and some of these flowers which look so beautiful one day. Gone. Flowers fading, by the way, is not pointing to the riches. Notice James is not saying it's the riches that will rust and decay. Actually, he'll say that later in this letter. James says that like a flower of the grass, the rich man will fade away. He's going to expire. And we all will. I was actually listening to John Meyer's song, Stop This Train, the other day. He says, I'm so scared of getting older. I'm only good at being young. So I play the numbers game to find a way to say my life has begun, has just begun. Had a talk with my old man, said, help me understand. He said, turn 68. Oh, you'll renegotiate. And he keeps singing again and again, stop this train, stop this train. It's just going faster and faster. Myers realizes, like so many artists have, we can't stop this train. Our lives are like a mist, like a vapor. We're here and gone, and the pace is relentless. What are we to do? James tells the rich man he's going to fade away, expire in the midst of his pursuits. I think James is telling the rich man, start thinking about your funeral. Let me ask you to do something this week. Imagine eavesdropping on your own funeral, showing up at your own funeral. What would that be like to hear your legacy as people get up and the eulogies are read? What words would be used by people you knew, who knew you best? What words would they use to describe your life? comes down to this. What were you living for? What were you living for? What will folks associate with you when they identify who you are, who you were? I know you might be thinking, man, Pastor Joel's getting pretty morbid here on a Sunday evening. The Apostle James would disagree. James is panning us out to see the big picture. This life is short. It's brief. Eternity is long. Blessed circumstances in this life are not anything to boast in. The rich and the poor will die and fade away just like everyone else. This is sobering. Yes, don't you think? But what is really sobering is witnessing a funeral of someone who's been a member of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and after that final eulogy is read, after everything has been said that will be said about this person, and I suddenly realize I never heard the name of our Lord Jesus Christ mentioned once in connection to this person's life. And they were a member of the church. You ever been there? This person was just like you in your seat, so near to the riches of our Lord Jesus Christ. But at the end of the day, no connection. And you left to wonder, is this person wearing the crown of life now? Or not? That is why, after a sobering moment, James now leaves us with inspiration. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I know this language sounds a little familiar here. James actually began. That's why I read the first part, talking about trials, tests, and steadfastness, encouraging us to rejoice when the trials of life come. Trials are God-given faith testers that over a lifetime make us perfect and complete. You see, every person who believes in our Lord Jesus Christ, what the Father does, he begins to press them into the mold of his own Son. And that is the most blessed condition of all. Yes, trials in life are often quite painful. When you're laughed at for not joining with others who are doing what you know is wrong, when you're betrayed by a loved one, when your job is hard, your boss is cruel, when you suffer with depression that never goes away, that day you find out you have cancer. James says, we are to say like the once rich man Job who lost it all in a moment, wealth, family, health. Job said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Remaining steadfast during those painful times shows God that we trust him, we love him, and we know he has what is best for us in store. And God, what James is saying here, rewards those who stand the test for all their days. And he gives them the crown of life, the crown of life, eternal life, glorifying and enjoying God forever. Friends, we need the message of James because it is not the message of our culture. Our culture is telling you to make the most of the journey because we don't even know if there's a destination, pretending there is no destination. I actually have a book in my CPE class, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. On average, the sober reality is we get about 4,000 weeks to live, give or take. And I think actually this book has got some really great encouragement in how to use our time wisely. It's super helpful in showing us how we wrongly order all our priorities. But the book, it's got a worldview. The book encourages you to embrace defeat because you are mortal. Oliver Berkman, who by the way, whose faith is the religion of productivity. He's actually said that. My religion is the religion of productivity. He writes, 
When it comes to how you're using your finite time, the universe absolutely could not care less. His premise is that we need to treat every moment with the reverence we'd show as if it were the final instance of it. And indeed, there's a sense in which every moment of life is a last time. It arrives, you'll never get it again, and once it passed, once it's passed, your remaining supply of moments will be smaller than before. He adds, this is the alternative, the unfashionable but powerful notion of letting time use you, approaching life not as an opportunity to implement your predetermined plans for success, but as a matter of responding to the needs of your place and your moment in history. There's a lot I could say here, but I'll keep it brief. Berkman obviously assumes his audience is post-Christian, has given up on any like future hope, and that there's nothing outside of ourselves to actually hope in. He makes that clear. There's no future days when all wrongs will be righted. In fact, he says this sort of hope is actually a curse. I hope I gave Berkman his due. It's actually a good book in many ways in terms of time management, but I'll just be honest with Mr. Berkman and with the message of our culture. I can't live that way. Can you? What is the point of a productive life? To be a little hamster on a wheel your whole life. I can't live each and every day realizing that every day is a day actually scheduled with funerals. That every good experience is my losing something I won't ever get back. And that I'm being used by time instead of using my time, a point where he keeps contradicting himself back and forth. Or that I'm ruled by a universe that doesn't care. Friends, that's what happens when you live without God. No God no hope. But the fact is, God has placed eternity in our hearts. That's why people have these deep longings. And all the pleasures of this life are homing beacons we know to pointing to something more. That is why from the moment we first believe, we know hope because we know God. No hope and oh, no God. No, no God and oh, no hope. No God, K-N-O-W. No hope, K-N-O-W. Yes, we embrace our earthly mortality. But friends, the good news is you're no ordinary being. C.S. Lewis talked about every person will one day be the most glorious creature. You'd be tempted to worship one day. Or there'll be a nightmare. Because we do have a destination we're heading towards. You were made in the image of God. And yes, we have meaning and purpose here and now. We are to invest in others find purpose in our community, and live in the here and now. But we're do it to do it in the hope that James tells us to contemplate the crown of life which awaits all those who live for him. Heaven's rewards, they're found throughout the Bible, again and again, to spur us on to faithfulness, despite those difficult trials we'll face on earth. Keeping our eyes on the prize is what motivates us to be single-minded, when faced with the temptations during our earthly existence. Friends, God bless, promises you blessings, a crown of life, when you remain steadfast out of love for him. And we can do that with our eyes fixed on Jesus, who for the joy set before him ran the race, 
He cleared the path for us by enduring every temptation. By the way, what was that joy? What was Jesus' joy? Seeing you cross the finish line and sharing his reward with you because he came here to earth because he loved you. Nobody has loved you more or better than Jesus Christ. So the question I want to leave you with tonight is, what do we desire? What are we living for? What we desire day in and day out will define who we are before a watching world. And our impact on others will either push people towards that crown of life to run the race, or it will hinder them and put things in their way. Friends, may that not be any of us going forward. We have wonderful opportunity in our day, in a hopeless world. So let us decide that today we will live by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're about to sing a song. I encourage you to really think about this line from the wonderful hymn, and may it be ours until our dying breath. Savior, sense of Zion City, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in your name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all its boasted pomp and show, solid joys, and lasting treasures. None but Zion's children know. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to give you our thanks and praise that you have brought us here tonight to sit under the, the word that you inspired James to write. And Lord, it is such a needed word in our day. And we're about to go out into the deluge of a world that is seeking to to keep us, Lord, from keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. I ask and pray that we will keep our eyes fixed on the things above where Christ is seated and not on the things below. I pray, Father, that you will give us the wisdom from above when we're facing those difficult trials. And I pray, Father, that we might each and every one of us, should our Lord Jesus tarry on that day, Lord, when they put us in the ground, I ask and pray that each and every one of us will have eulogy after eulogy, all proclaiming that we lived and we loved our Lord Jesus Christ for all of our days, and we sought to serve him to his glory. Do this for us and for the glory of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.